0: got to the crazy cutter guy. One of my favorite stories in all of the Bible because it blows up so many uh, things that a lot of people think about Christianity. But before we jump into that, I just want to reset the series that we are in, um, by the way, I'm Pastor Mark, if you have no idea who I am. Uh, we are going through a, a series where we are looking at different disciples of Jesus uh, in the Bible and pulling out kind of characteristics of them and learning um, about different aspects of being a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus. The first week, Pastor Eric set up the series talking about Peter and talking about how he was not the best of the best, and he was a fisherman, and and, and Jesus called him. And then the f- next week, I talked about Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was the best of the best, religiously speaking and academically speaking, and just how Jesus uh, used him. And uh, today, again, we're talking about the crazy cutter guy, and uh, really just a... Uh, a really interesting story, but last week I, I I mentioned that all the people that we were talking about that we're talking about them not because of what they didn't do, not what they uh, abstained from, not uh, but what they did do, how they actively followed God and they took steps out and they took uh, chances. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, the other day and just about how, how different uh, people uh, have missed their calling in life or missed just uh, the excitement and beauty in life that, that God had envisioned for them. And I was reminded once again uh, by that by uh, a guy that I ride uh, bicycles with. Uh, he came on the uh, cycling scene about a year ago, and uh, he—he was—he's just—he's one of these powerhouses. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, you guys know what a, a centaur is—like half human, half horse. That's him. Uh, uh, he's incredible. In fact, his first race that he ever raced with us, uh, he won. And uh, he has had this track record where, where he's just increasingly getting better. And I was like, who is this guy? And, I, and um, just the other day, I got to hear his whole story. And I'm like, where did you come from? Well, you know, wh- why did you get into cycling and everything? And he said, well, Mark, uh, a year ago, I was 100 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I was sitting on the couch watching TV and eating some you know, chocolatey snacks or something. I don't know what he he was eating. And he he said, you know what? I don't want this to be my life. And he said, you know what? I I decided to uh, uh, go on a diet and a healthy diet and uh, not a crash diet, but I just wanted to change my life. And, uh, And then he bought a bicycle and he started riding. And I said, isn't that amazing? I'm like, a year ago, would you have imagined that you would be like con- uh, consistently on the podium, racing against some of these just fantastic cyclists that've been doing them, doing it their whole life? And if you didn't get off that couch, you wouldn't be experiencing any of this. And he's all like, "I know." I, he's like, "I can't believe that what you know all the things that I miss." But I'm like, "You are experiencing it now, and how cool!" And it just makes me think: how many of us miss? that thing, that thing that brings us joy, that thing that God has envisioned for, for us because we just simply do not get off the couch. And that's what this series is about, is to point to people who took a chance, who took a risk, who, who didn't settle for the status quo, but, but took a step out. I mean, I'm sure the first time he got on a bike, being 100 pounds overweight, that he probably felt ridiculous wearing spandex. I don't know if he did anything, but spandex is really tough stuff. (laughs) (sighs) But but he didn't let his embarrassment or or anything like that get in his way. And again, that's a physical thing, and, and we're talking about spiritual things, but there's a direct parallel that I think story after story and story after story as we are talking about through this series that I want the thing that we get out of this is, you know what? I need to take a step out. I need to take a chance. I need to find that thing that God has called me to do because I believe settling for anything less than God's vision for your life is called sin. So, Let's get into this great story, and uh, it's found uh, actually in all the Gospels except John, all the synoptic Gospels, but we're going to be looking at Mark's account because Mark's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why you're laughing. I just, I, I, like, I like Mark, you know, it's so Mark chapter 5, and what I'm going to do is I... This story is so cool that I'm just going to read through the story first, and then we're going to go back around and we're going to unpack it a little bit. So here we go. So they arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him and bowed low before him. With a shriek, he screamed, "'Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the God, or Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me.' For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, "'Come out of the man, you evil spirit.' Then Jesus demanded, "'What is your name?' And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirit begged. spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs... "...plunged down into the steep hillside, inside of, uh, into the lake, and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news that they, as they ran. People rushed out to see what happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons." He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, but Jesus said, no, Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of the region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. You guys pray with me? Dear God, as we look into this story, uh, as bizarre as it is, uh, uh, for us in the 21st century here in in Tallahassee, help us just uh, just realize why this is such an important story. So important that that it was recorded in all three Synoptic Gospels. That that there's something here for us that that you want us to know. There's some aspect of of discipleship that that this man, as messed up as he was, that we can learn from. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's a lot going on here, and uh, some of it is definitely going to need a little bit of explanation. So, I mean, the first the first thing is that that we have this kind of sequence of events, and. If you notice in in verses six through nine that that uh, obviously Jesus had had told the demons to to leave before, and they refused, and I think that this is an interesting kind of statement because it says right here that with a shrieky scream, "Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?" In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. But He didn't. And I think that there's something going on here that that really challenges us. Like, why, why didn't the Spirit obey Jesus immediately? And I think that, you know, as I've read... Uh, different commentaries and things, and different different uh, uh, theologians and scholars have some different ideas on this. But but the reality is, is when I when I come back and I and I look at scripture, and when there's a question about about scripture, I always ask myself, you know, when something doesn't make sense, you know, what. You know how how does Jesus's action or anything in in Scripture that don't that doesn't make sense to me how how does how does this build restore um, uh, or begin a right relationship with God people or creation and I think that looking through that lens is extremely important to this story otherwise it will be very difficult to understand and. Here we have that, that we don't know what's going on in the, in the spiritual world and everything, but there's a, there's a conversation, there's this, there's this struggle between good and evil, there, there's this epic battle between the unseen world and, and the Son of God. And one thing that we do see is this, this establishment of that the enemy is looking to control humanity and Jesus is looking to free us. And you have to then take a step back and say, at what cost? At what cost, if, if Jesus forced the issue uh, to have the demons uh, leave the man unwillingly, what, at what state would that have left that man? And I don't know. And you probably don't either, and I don't think any of us know, but I, but I think this goes to a trust issue in Jesus, and I think that this whole story really speaks to, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and knows better than us? And at this point, I, I, like, in, in the way that I read Scripture, that, that I read this as, you know what, that Jesus is interacting with the enemy for the good of that man and the good of us to teach us something. So in verse 9, then Jesus demanded, what is your name? And he replies, you know, my name is Legion. Now, the evil spirit uh, named Legion that, just to let you know, in the Roman Ar- army, the Legion was the largest kind of military unit. And that was between 3,000 and 6,000. Thousand soldiers. So I don't know if this is literal. You know, I don't know if there was you know three thousand and one demons or or five thousand nine hundred ninety nine demons. And I, I don't think that's the point. There's a lot. Like this guy was possessed, and uh, and that he had become a reservoir that that the enemy could uh, could be in, and. Uh, so in verse 10, it continues on and says, The evil spirits be, uh, begged him again and again to uh, not send them to some distant place. Now, this is where it gets really, really interesting. Now, the distant place, it's actually a reference that we see in uh, Revelation that, that talks about uh, a special place for demons. Uh, it's, it, in other translations, it's the bottomless pit. A place where, where you are falling and you wish, uh, in Revelation that it talks about, John talks about how uh, you're falling and you are being tortured and you are, wish you were dead, but death never comes. So, they don't, they don't want to go there. But all of us, including myself, are sitting there like, I guess it shouldn't have been a demon then right? I, mean, I was like, you know, you chose, you know, that you wanted to follow Satan, you know, and everything. But, but Jesus, at, at this point, He's like, okay, let, let, let's talk about this. And, uh, and, and again, I, I, I think it goes back to that question that the enemy's goal was to control humans, and, and Jesus is, uh, wants to free them. But at this point, the demons know if Jesus wants to send them to hell or the bottomless pit, that he can do it. But they're negotiating. There's something going on. And this is something that you know, we don't see, that the, that the disciples don't see, and they don't understand. Well, back in verse 11, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the Spirit begged. Spirits begged, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about two thousand pigs plunged down into the steep hillside, into the lake, and drowned in the water. So that begs the question. Why did Jesus grant? the demon's request, right? To go out of a man into about 2,000 pigs, and then they took a a flyer right off the cliff and then died. And again, this is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, not John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, in the gospel account. And none of them know why. None of them give a reason why because they don't know. But I think one thing is clear that it's difficult for us in the 21st century, you know, in the age of PETA to, to, to you know, go like, "Gee, why did Jesus, you know, cast these demons into these pigs? And, 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 and basically, I mean, you think about the, not only just kind of like the, the pig thing. But then just the economic impact that it had on um, that region and, and, and just, you know, the, the, the choice or the, the measure of, of values that are going on. And you wonder why, why he cho- chose to do that when he could have just sent them to hell and healed the crazy guy and won the support of the village and became the, the garrison's hero. Doesn't that make more sense? Because that's what would have happened if Jesus said, yeah, so, sorry, demons. Sorry, legion. To the bottomless pit, the pit of despair. You know, you go. <laughs> right? A little Princess Bride there for you. So, you know, and, and everybody would have loved him, right? They would have been like, whoop. Jesus, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, you know, all this stuff. They probably would have made a statue of him and all this, but but he didn't choose to go that route. Instead, verse 14, the herdsmen fled into the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. They weren't afraid when he was naked and cutting himself and like a lunatic. No, that was cool. That was was normal. And how often, as bad as our normal is, do we grab onto that Because at least the devil we know, right? Then those who had seen what happened told others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And the crowd began to plead with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. So, why did Jesus do this? And I got to tell you, I, I dug deep into this this week and I read all sorts of stuff. All sorts of crazy things out there. Um, you know, the Internet's a wonderful thing. And then, you know, just grabbing all my commentaries and things like that, going through and looking at theologians. And, and, and I want to just tell you some of the top reasons that, that I have found why uh, scholars, theologians, and just kooks on the Internet have, have come up with on, on why Jesus did what He did. Well the first one that I'm gonna tell you, this one made me made me laugh. Jesus technically didn't command them to enter the pigs. He just allowed it, so it wasn't his fault. (laughs) Like to me, this this argument is more like a bad episode of Law and Order or something like that, like Jesus on trial, like Jesus, did you, you know, kill two thousand pigs? No, technically, I I, I I didn't do it. I just gave permission. I mean, what, what reality? Where? What, it's like, that doesn't tell us why. That's like trying to get Jesus off the hook and making Jesus's behavior okay. And that's one of the things that I cannot stand is when we try to make Jesus's actions okay for people, palatable. Sometimes Jesus does some things that are really hard for us to understand. And I think we need to to part of discipleship is to wrestle with that and to uh, follow Jesus regardless. The next one that is pretty normal out there is Jesus was trying to punish the uh, uh the region, for breaking the Mosaic law. I, I don't think that this makes any sense. Uh, uh, Number one, and they were mostly Gentiles, non-Jews. So, who cares if they were following the law or not? Also, that you know, Jesus broke the Mosaic law many times uh, in his ministry. Uh, and in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, we all know that in Matthew chapter five, verse seventeen, it says, "Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish there." Purpose, And what we see here is Jesus sees and lived out the relational reason for the law, but not elevating the law above the plan of God uh, itself. And then, Second, uh, in Acts chapter 10, Jesus tells Peter, shows him a vision of all, you know, like all this wonderful barbecue and all this kind of stuff of pigs and catfish and, and everything. Basically, it was kind of a vision of Tallahassee and, uh, and, and said, Man, all of this is good. And you, you go ahead and eat it. And Peter was all like, No, no, I've never eaten any of that stuff. And he's like, Don't. Don't say, you know, don't say is bad what I say is good. So there's a whole consistency thing here. So why did he do it? So why did he do it? And this is, this is Mark's commentary. Okay, so you can take, you know, you, if you like the law and order thing, then that's fine. You know, but this is, this is where I've come on this. Again, I think the best way to interpret Scripture, especially Scripture that is really bizarre, and this is really bizarre, right? This is bizarre. And uh, it's really bizarre. And they're like, well, why? why did He do that? That's not what I would have done. And, you know, what, what's going on? Again, you have to ask the question, how does this action or Scripture promote a right relationship with God, people, and or creation? So, how could letting 2,000 pigs perish restore a right relationship with God, people, and or creation? Knowing, number one, that Jesus did not strictly follow the law of Moses, but He followed the intent. Two, Jesus later instructed Peter that pulled pork is delicious, right? <laughs> And three, Jesus came to invite Jews and Gentiles alike to a restored relationship with God, people, and creation. And I, I think that the unwritten kind of fact in all of these things was something that the disciples did not know, that I think that actually we do know. Now I'm not going to claim that I know the answer, but I'm just I I'm I'm taking us through an exercise of just. Relationally interpreting this scripture, okay? Because I don't know. nobody knows why Jesus did what He did. But this is, this is kind of what I think. Isn't it more plausible that destroying those 2, 000, um, those 2,000 swine, pigs, even though there was a, a dramatic financial or economic? Uh, Impact to that region at that time, that perhaps Jesus, being the Son of God, knew something that nobody else knew. And I want to fast forward forward us to 2009. Anybody know what happened with pigs in, two, and, uh, uh, in 2009? Swine flu. Swine flu. Pandemic that that ended up. Killing worldwide five hundred and seventy-nine thousand people. That over uh, a million, uh, way over a million pigs were had to be ki- destroyed in order for um, in order to get the containment of the H one N one virus that was going around and and killing people. Now I have no idea, but. Knowing that, that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did things to, to restore God to himself and, and uh, bring a right, a right uh, balance in, in creation, isn't it plausible that there was something wrong with these 2,000 pigs, something that, that nobody could see but he knew? and He actually took this opportunity to essentially put an economic, uh, take the heat for what was actually much better for the whole region as a whole. Because if those pigs infected other pigs and, and all of this, that there would have been great death and destruction. And maybe that would have even spread through the whole region and would have impacted the whole mission of why. Jesus came. And, you know, again, I don't know, but I think this goes to answer a question. Who knows better, you or God? When, when, you know, you get upset about God giving permission for bad things to happen in your life, and this is exactly what this Scripture is talking about, Right? Jesus gave permission to the legion of demons to enter in a herd of pigs and they jump off and they die and people are terrified. And you can look at that two ways. Jesus made a really bad call or Jesus is actually allowing a bad situation that, uh, in order for something much better to happen. And I can't answer that for you, but, but when I read the Scripture and where I've landed a, a, as a pastor and as a, as, a, as a follower of Christ, when bad things come into my life, and they do, and when bad things come into other people's lives, as horrible as they are, to realize that, you know what, I am not God. And I can't see everything. And I don't know the future. And I think of that's one of the parts of, of being a follower of Christ is making Jesus your Lord. Not only your Savior, but the Lord, the leader of your life, and following Him even when He allows things that you do not understand. And I think ultimately... We know this because of John three sixteen and 17. Because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17 that hardly anybody ever quotes, but I think is equally as important. God sent His Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. So here's where it gets really interesting for me. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him, but Jesus said, No. Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. And this is the really cool point. Up to this point, everybody that Jesus had healed, you know what he told them? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Jesus, we want to be the first missionary. No, you're not quite right. You got a job. You got clothes on. You're in your right mind. How many demons do you have? Fourteen. No, that's not nearly enough. This is one of the coolest things about my Lord and Savior. That the person that He chose to be the first missionary of our faith was a naked cutting gr- grave living lunatic. Jesus is like, you're the guy I've been looking for. <laughs> right? You're perfect. Like it's Peter, look at this guy, right? Man, he makes you look good. You know, yeah. You're... So I think that this is so telling about Jesus. So telling about Jesus. That Jesus does not use the same metrics that humanity uses. That Jesus' criteria for discipleship is not resume based. But it is revelation and restoration based. That Jesus will take our past pain and our hurts, and that He will entrust those things to us to be His agents, His ambassadors for relational restoration. And I think the beauty of Jesus choosing this crazy, cutting, grave, living, naked guy as the first missionary, as a social outcast, that it takes away any excuses that we may have. When we are called by God, and we're all called by God, to take that step, to get off the couch, to get on our spiritual bike and run the race or cycle the race or whatever, mixed metaphors, sorry, that we all can come up with excuses, but this, this account, I think, takes it all away. In fact, our whole faith journey has been paved with drunks. Adulterers, murderers, persecutors. That our faith legacy and our Lord says, you know what? I choose you. And if you trust in me, that I can take every hurt, every pain, everything that's ever been done to you, every, every heartache that you have ever experienced, and if you entrust those to me, that I can use them to bring healing and restoration to others. And that is one of the beautiful invitations about Jesus. So, I think personally, you know, the question for each one of us is, what what is holding us back? What… is in our past is holding us back is it our past sin is it is it past pain brokenness what are those things and you have to hold that up against our first missionary Jesus's first missionary and say you know what if God can use a naked, cutting, crazy, demon-possessed, grave-living guy, then surely He can use me, right? That's where church people would say, amen, I agree. Like, we don't have any excuse that it's our time. It's no one else's time, guys. It's our time to get off the couch and get into the game. And this is the cool thing. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Many scholars believe that this was the beginning of, of the invitation of God coming Right, and the message that the Messiah has come not just for the Jews but for the Gentiles as well. That this is the this this is ground zero of the Jesus movement that led to you and I being here today. I just want to leave you with this because this is what I believe that that the crazy naked cutting guy teaches us about discipleship. And I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to you in verse 13. If it seems we are crazy, he would qualify, right? It is to bring glory to God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. Verse 16, I really want you to listen to these last two verses, okay? Focus. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. That guy's just naked, he's crazy, he's a cutter. He lives in a graveyard. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human uh, point of view. How differently we know Him now. Verse 17, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun a new life that you are no longer in bondage to your past, but you have been entrusted and empowered from your, uh, by your past through the redemption of Jesus Christ. That he has redeemed those things, if you let him, to be able to speak God's love in a language to people that could never hear it from the person sitting next to you or from me that you have been uniquely designed, that your path has been paved. And even though you may look at the heartache and the pain and the hurt as a negative, those of us who are followers of Christ must believe that Jesus knows better than we do. And that those things have been sifted through the permissive will of God not to destroy us, But to free us in the life changing redemption of Jesus Christ. So, a disciple of Jesus is a new creation. The old is gone. And it has been entrusted to you and it has been washed through the power of Jesus for you to get off the couch and go run the race. Because all of humanity is counting on you to do that. You guys pray with me.